X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith in Portland, Oregon, and it is Wednesday, February the 10th. It's a great day to subscribe to The Local, great day to share something you learned, great day to tag a friend. Today, back in the day, February 10th, 1989, Ron Brown was elected chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He was the first African-American to hold this position. As head of the DNC, he was integral to helping Bill Clinton get elected in 1992. He then served in Clinton's cabinet as Secretary of Commerce. His political career was not without controversy, accused of pressuring businesses to contribute to his political allies and rewarding those who did. After his death in 1996, the new Commerce Secretary implemented many new safeguards to prevent corruption in the department. Today, back in the day, February 10th, 2001, was the first bike ride on the worst day of the year. The worst day of the year bike ride takes place every year around this time in February. It's an event to celebrate Portland cyclists and their stubborn determination to hit the pavement no matter how gloomy the weather. Thousands of participants bike either 18 or 40 miles throughout the city. People wear costumes and stop along the way for hot food and beer. Money raised goes to benefit the community cycling center. It's Black History Month, and to celebrate, we're highlighting the lives and achievements of black Oregonians throughout history. Today, we remember Obo Addy. Obo Addy, the celebrated drummer who helped popularize world beat, a genre blending African and European musical traditions. Born in Ghana in 1936, he came from a family with strong roots in music and spirituality. In 1969, he was recognized by the Arts Council of Ghana as a master of community's style of music. Obo first played internationally at the Munich Summer Games in 1972. He moved to Portland in 1978, where he became a beloved teacher and bandleader. He taught music at Lewis and Clark for decades and held weekly drumming workshops around the city. His many awards included a master's fellowship from the Oregon Arts Council. In 1996, he received the National Heritage Fellowship Award from the National Endowment for the Arts. He was the first African to receive the award. Here in Portland, Oboe and his wife also created the Homowo Festival, a celebration of Ghanaian culture, music, and harvest. He passed away from cancer in 2012 at the age of 76. And today, we give a shout-out to Obo Andy. Today, we have an interview with Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan. And let's start with your Quick 6 local rundown. The metro area will move from extreme risk to high risk on Friday. That's just two days away. Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington counties have all been downgraded from the highest risk category, a.k.a. extreme, to the next highest, which we call high risk. Sort of like DEFCON 1 down to DEFCON 2. Under high-risk regulations, restaurants can open indoors for 25% capacity or 50 people, whichever number is smaller. Groups are still limited to six people from no more than two households. Restaurants and bars still have to close by 11 p.m. Gotta get to sleep, folks. Gyms, movie theaters, and entertainment venues can open up for limited capacity. The state shut down all counties in November and introduced a new metric by which to reopen. A county must have a lower than 10% positivity rate and less than 200 cases per 100,000 residents to move into the high-risk category. The metro area, which includes the three most populous counties in the state, have been linked together, so all three counties must meet the threshold before any of them can change levels. Over the past two weeks, all three counties have dropped below 200 cases per 100,000, and the positivity rate is between 3 and 4%. Dr. Jennifer Vines of the Health Authority said in a press release, and I am quoting, We can take these incremental steps because people have stepped up and done hard work. Our numbers have been dropping to reflect that. So speaking for myself and quoting myself, thanks everybody for staying back and wearing your masks and stuff. Seven other counties will move out of extreme risk category two. 
These include Clats of Columbia, Deschutes, Hood River, Klamath, Lynn, and Morrow counties. Elsewhere in Oregon, Grant County moved from moderate to lower risk, and Baker County took two steps from high risk down to lower risk. But don't get cocky, Portlanders. Don't forget to mask up, stay physically distant, stay back, and wash your hands. But feel free to support local restaurants and entertainment venues. They need us. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. Oregon counted another 529 COVID cases on Tuesday. There were seven new deaths announced, bringing the total number of COVID-related deaths since last March to 2031. So far, 588,740 doses of the vaccine have been administered. This number includes first and second doses. 801,125 doses of vaccine have been delivered to sites across Oregon. And speaking of vaccines, Monday was the first day that Oregonians over the age of 80 were eligible to be vaccinated. The rollout has not been completely smooth. Despite publicly stating that vaccine appointments would be available starting at noon on Monday, OHA decided to open the online portal early. This caused confusion among those trying to sign up for the shots, as by the time noon rolled around, all the appointments for this week were already taken. A few hours later, and all the slots next week were full too. OHA did not say why they opened the portal early, but it was a pleasant surprise for some and a frustrating experience for many others. If you have questions about how to get vaccinated, you can call 211 to schedule an appointment or talk to a representative who can walk you through the process. Next week, those over 75 will be eligible for vaccination, with the eligible age dropping by five years each week. Federal regulators upheld Oregon's findings on the Jordan Cove Natural Gas Terminal in Coos Bay. It does not look like the natural gas pipeline on Oregon's southern coast is going to get built anytime soon. The U.S. Commerce Department upheld the denial of a key permit to the Pembina Pipeline. The company had appealed the Commerce Department after the state of Oregon denied that permit last year. The state had ruled the project was not in compliance with the Coastal Zone Management Act. Pembina had hoped to find a sympathetic ear in the Trump administration, but the Commerce Department declined to lend that ear, saying the company had failed to show the project is consistent with the law. And now the Trump administration is no longer in charge going forward. The Jordan Cove project has been in the works for 15 years. It looks like it may have hit the end of the road this time. The decision on Monday comes after a January 19th ruling by federal regulators to uphold the state's earlier decision against granting the project a clean water certification. The state has also denied a necessary dredging permit for the project. Opponents of the project cheered Monday's decision, but Pembina has yet to pipe up. You see what I did there? Billy Williams will resign his post as U.S. attorney by the end of this month. Billy Williams is the top federal law enforcement officer in Oregon. He announced Tuesday that he will resign his post on February 28th. The announcement came shortly after an all-U.S. attorney phone call with Acting Attorney General Robert Monty Wilkinson. Wilkinson instructed most presidentially appointed U.S. attorneys to submit resignations effective February 28, 2021. Williams falls into this category. Williams has held the post since May of 2015, but he was formally appointed to the seat by President Trump. Williams worked for more than 20 years for the U.S. Department of Justice. He is maybe most known for his prosecution of Ammon and Ryan Bundy, 
along with others behind the 41-day-long occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in 2016. The Bundys and other leaders of the occupation ultimately won acquittals from a jury to the surprise of many. Others charged in that case pleaded guilty or were convicted during a second trial. Williams also oversaw the trial of an elite FBI agent who the government accused of lying after firing shots during the same standoff. That trial also ended in an acquittal. In a statement, Williams said he is, quote, taking all necessary steps to ensure a smooth transition and will provide more information soon. Inmates in Inverness jail were pepper sprayed after a supposed riot broke out Sunday night. Inmates have been increasingly upset over the massive COVID outbreak in the prison. A struggle broke out on Sunday night and inmates ended up taking over a dormitory. According to police report, during the disturbance, a taser was deployed as well as pepper foam. The incident first surfaced on social media and in an article by the Portland Mercury and noted the concerns about the use of pepper spray by deputies. Robin Maher, a legal assist with Metropolitan Public Defender, spoke about the incident, saying, and I am quoting, I'm alarmed that they're using respiratory irritants on people who may have been exposed to COVID-19. Pepper spray causes people to cough and sneeze, potentially exacerbating the outbreak. According to the Oregonian, the conflict began over a COVID-19 test. Apparently, one of the inmates in the dorm had just tested positive, and that prompted the request and a subsequent protest by inmates. Inmates and activists have been speaking out about the unsafe conditions in the jail, asking for N95 masks, medical care, sweaters, blankets, as well as more time outside and more access to showers. This and other COVID outbreaks in jails prompted a judge to rule last week that vaccines need to be made immediately available to incarcerated people in Oregon. The first shipment of vaccines to Oregon prisons arrived yesterday. Vaccines begin today. Authorities expect at least 75% of inmates to get vaccinated. Unlike other populations, prisoners will have to opt out if they don't want to be vaccinated, which increases the likelihood that most of them will get the shot in the arm. Good news. Some high school sports got the go-ahead to start practicing. Oregon School Activities Association has approved the start of soccer, cross-country, and maybe volleyball. Soccer and cross-country practice can begin around the state as soon as February 22nd. Volleyball is proving to be a little more complicated because it is played indoors, and officials still have not decided what to do about high school football. The OSAA board will meet again on February 17th to figure out details about playoffs and hopefully to gain more clarity around the football season. But the silver lining is that kids will be able to resume some group extracurricular activities, even while some schools remain closed. And that's today's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have our conversation with Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan. Ryan joined Jefferson Smith to discuss his first year on the City Council, his Housing First initiatives, and how the pandemic has affected houseless Portlanders. Here are Commissioner Dan Ryan and Jefferson Smith. Thanks to the wonders of modern technology, we might right now have on the line and in a screen in front of my face and vice versa. Commissioner, the city of Portland, Dan Ryan. Dan Ryan, can you hear me? I can hear you, Jefferson. Good morning. I want to give a big shout out to Sam Smargiasi for rigging this up. Thank you so much, Sam. And thank you for joining us, Commissioner. Commissioner Ryan is approaching the end of the first year in the seat. It is. It feels like 
not a year ago that you and I were having the conversation about you beginning this adventure. Overseas, Portland Housing Bureau, Joint Office of Homeless Services, the Bureau of Development Services, and the Portland's Children, the, excuse me, the Portland Children's Levy. He is effectively Portland's housing czar. Dan, how do you liking the gig? I'm enjoying it. It's a, it's a, it's a good fit. I think I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be here and be of service to my hometown. What's the biggest disruption of your expectations about the job? What did you think was going to happen that you turned out being the most wrong about, for good or for ill? That's a really good question. Uh, so far, I really haven't experienced any surprises. I, my eyes were really wide open about the um, about what this was going to be at this time. And I also knew I was moving from community-driven solutions in the nonprofit space to the government, um, the public sector. And so, you know, I'm, I'm developing some uh, patience um, and persistence, both going together at the same time to make sure that we can really connect the dots and move things forward. So it's, it's uh, but really no, no big surprises. Did you think your house was going to get vandalized more times or fewer times? <laughs> All right. Now, that's fair. <laughs> um, I think that everyone in public service wishes that um, we weren't here when it comes to public safety for, I think, a lot of people in service. Um, and that has been difficult on me and everybody that's in the public service uh, world that's been, um, I think, just, uh, you know, uncomfortably uh, visited upon. Um, so the good news is um, I have great neighbors, first of all, and I've been, I always, I've been communicating with them a lot. And, um, and anyways, and the good news is we've had three weekends in a row where there's been no visitors. So I think, I hope everyone realizes how difficult it is to do life in general, especially during COVID. And if there's one thing we all need for our own mental health is um, an opportunity to have some restorative time um, so we can refuel and be of service to this city that we all love. So um, I, I really hope that some boundaries are, are just being established um, once again. Public safety. You're not running those bureaus, but you're in the mix. And those questions are arising for the whole city as well as for the city budget. We also got some questions in. One first, this one from Jackie Murphy. Do you think that the gun violence reduction team, formerly the gang uh, violence pre uh, prevention team, should that be reinstated? Related question to that, do you think that it is fair or unfair to link the rise in gun violence to the, the presence or not presence of the handful of officers in that gun violence reduction team, or if that has more to do with the same community stress that's driving people to vandalize your house? I think that it's first, I want to start off by saying, um, I appreciate the question, even though it's not my bureau, I really ran on that all of us should be focused on the top priorities of the city. And recently we had a work session, which I really pushed for, where all of us um, had dialogue about what the top three priorities are and community safety was definitely one of them. Um, I'm, I've been listening to uh, what the mayor has been saying the last week um, about uh, you know how to revive this. And I think he's coming at it in a creative way in partnership with community, in partnership with Chief Lavelle. And so I, I think that we're on the right we're on the right track, um, but Portland has seen a big spike and we can't be tone deaf to that. And so it's also gotta be a community driven solution. 
my uh, my platform was always about culture change when it came to the police specifically, but then looking at community safety as a three-legged stool. So you have police, you have fire, and then where's our mental health um, response, if you will. And that's where Commissioner Hardesty's leadership on getting the Portland street response up and running is a big deal. And then how are we going to coordinate uh, the response to that? Like where we'll take people for, for um, therapy, for um, treatment. And that's where we really have to partner with both the state and the county to make sure that that part of the three-legged stool is much stronger. Yeah, so I, I'm, 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 I'm on board with uh, how we're moving forward with more creativity in our community safety system. You're one of the best process communicators that I know. Yeah, and I hear you're you're excellent at, at reminding people we've got to roll up our sleeves, keep in dialogue. You're you you're excellent at praising colleagues. Uh, I appreciated your in, a, in an interview recently you're saying that you know don't bet against Portland uh, at your emphasis in a to break down silos uh, and and I will, and when it comes to public safety, then more within your ambit talking about housing, but still starting with where we started uh, to get as as specific as we can. Uh, in as you mentioned, uh, you ran on to a significant degree as what was gripping the city was in fact what was happening with uh, community safety. What's the most? In addition to, is it just Portland Street response? Let's root for it. Uh, what's the most specific thing you think we can do? And you're thinking about you might have to be the third vote for something, right? Either the third vote to give Chief Lavelle the hundred plus additional police officers they want to fill those vacancies, or to say no we should hold off on that money and put that money into something new or into services that aren't the current police bureau. Where do you land? Either what's the most, the most specific change you'd like to see, or do you think we ought to fill those 100 vacancies? Uh, that's a, I think that what's most important to focus on is what results we want to have at the end of this, and we need to have a better um, community response. And so when I think about community safety, with um, even the spike in gun violence. I know there's contracts that go to nonprofit organizations like ERCO that have relationships with some of our refugee community. Um, sometimes there's um, frictions that, that take place in other countries and then now they're here and then it does, and then they're, they have gun, more access to guns and there's, it's, uh, it's something that we have to get to the bottom of. So it's all relational. And, and so you're right about how that's always been my focus because that's where I've always seen the most results. So for me, it's more about where are we gonna get the most results? Like when you look at the data, if you had people that have relationships with the families that are most impacted by the violence and you give them more resources to build some um, relationships amongst themselves um, before they you know, get to a place where they have to go to the extremes of gun violence. So I think for me, it's always based on the root causes. More inclined to put in 100 new police officers or more inclined to take that money and put it to something else? I'm always going to focus on a building a community solution. It's, I think everyone wants the same results, which is, which is safer, everyone to feel safer on the streets. You know, a mother should be able to get up at, um, you know, 1 a.m. because her baby needs some Pedialyte and she needs to feel safe to walk to the store at that hour to, to get those supplies for her child. And right now we have too many people in some neighborhoods that don't feel safe to even leave their home at certain hours. Do you think that Portland's arguably light touch with right-wing street violence versus police treatment of counter-protesters in the past few years potentially empowered groups like the Proud Boys to think they could 
either attack here or even sent signals that they could attack the U.S. Capitol with impunity? Uh, I think that um, we've all been kicked in the butt in terms of how to handle um, protest rhetoric. I think that um, it's something that everyone should be focusing on better practices on, period. We, um, we definitely um, just have to continue to have more transparency um, with our police and how we deal with, with any of the unrest and agitation. So I, I'm not going to play. I, I haven't been in the trenches on the details in which you're speaking of. Yeah. But I just know that I feel like across the country, we've really been slow to um, have a different approach to uh, protest rhetoric. And I say it like that because I kind of was a kid when I first started going with my mom to protest rhetoric, if you will, in the you know late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I think that we need to like allow that space to be but also um, allow people to have their voice and, and when it's peaceful and when it's not, like call it when it's not peaceful. So. Let's move to the area where you are in the trenches or at least really close to them, or maybe you're helping to dig them. Uh, and that is in the arena of housing. You are in a yeah. not unique, but a special circumstance currently unique, not historically unique, but a special circumstance of being our liaison to the Joint Office of Homeless Services, being sort of running that bureau, uh, running Bureau Development Services, and running the Housing Bureau. And therefore, it seems to me that if housing challenges aren't completely fixed in Portland over the last couple of years, it's because of you. Okay, we haven't resolved every problem in all of housing. It's because Dan Ryan didn't pull it off. What's the What opportunity does that present? And again, maybe even in in more sharp terms, Success looks like what in two years? It's a good question. Success looks like that Dan and the fellow members of the council actually get in some alignment with where we're going, that the city council and the county commissioners and the chair all get an alignment in where we're going. When you picture like a bunch of squiggly arrows kind of going in different directions, um, that's not going to get us anywhere. So we're at a time where we really need to implement the Metro's measure successfully. The voters were uh, generous. Some of them, um, I think, were so moved by their compassion, but frustrated by not knowing what the strategic plan is, what success does look like. So it's really important that we break down the silos within the cities, bureaus, between the city and the county, get really clear about our uh, where we are and where we're going. And that starts with some things that are pretty wonky, but you like that. And it's about data. Like right now, try to get some really crisp data sets on how many houseless people we have on any given night. How many are on the streets with zero services? How many are in alternative shelters that are getting services? How many are finally in some permanent housing? How many have actually stayed in that housing for more than two years and actually are working now? So it's like we really need to get uh, that kind of concrete information so it'll allow us to continue to invest in the practices that make the most sense. I really want us to know each and every houseless person by name. And we're standing on the shoulders of some amazing work that's been done by a very scrappy uh, coalition in the sector of houselessness. It really wasn't until the last five years that we've seen revenue streams come in to actually formalize some of, monetize some of the system. So now it's our chance to take in those investments and success wasn't just getting the money in, success will be about how we're going to spend it wisely and get results. I appreciate your comment of being really clear and how do we get really clear. And some of this might be speculation, but I, I, I was thinking this morning about 
the announcements of a new, you know, new housing facility being built, right, or a new shelter being built, or, uh, or let's I don't know, say hypothetically speaking, a former jail that's confer- that's converted into a into a facility, and and what it what it has reminded me of a little bit, and I say this not, I, I, this I do not say this to cast aspersions, but because my curiosity remains, that it's a little bit like a gun buyback. Right. So there's an event with a gun buyback and then everybody brings in, you know, they buy back a bunch of guns. Hey, we brought back twelve hundred guns. Right. Whatever the gun. Wow. That's twelve hundred. That's a lot. Right. And hey, we built this number of new units. Hey, there's this many new beds. And my question with the gun buybacks after, you know, initial cheering would be like, well, how many are there? What's a number that actually will matter? Like twelve hundred is better than zero. But my, our comparison isn't from zero. Our comparison is whatever with whatever our objective is. How close are we to the objective? Do we have a sense right now of how many houseless people that we are working with, that we are needing to serve, that we are living among uh, and living together with in our town, in our county? Do we know that now? And do we have an objective of what that number ought to be after a particular time period? Yeah, no, really good. Uh, the fact is, we it's it's not we don't have crisp data like we would, which we should have. Um, COVID also has changed everything. So COVID um, has definitely spiked the number of people that are out on the streets, and it's a complicated host of factors. One is um, that because of physical distancing, um, some people that were maybe couch surfing were no longer wanted at certain locations. Um, because of other issues, people were bumped out of their homes um, where they were staying and just hanging on by a thread. And so we have more people out on the streets. We also have less people, obviously, downtown in the central core that are going to work every day. And so you really notice and experience the houseless in ways that we haven't before. But we just don't know the exact numbers. And that's a problem that we have to solve. And so we need to take some of this in, this money that's coming in from the initiative and really use it to build that infrastructure because it's very important that we have a sense of who they are, not just by number, but what kind of differentiated services that they need. Some people um, are in a situation where they're a hard uh, core working person and they're um, it's been too expensive for them to live in Portland for some time and so they're amount that they pay per month is too high. And then they lost their job because of service industry cuts. Now they're houseless, but they are ready to work. And so we have to figure out how to focus on that audience in a very different way than someone like my brother who passed away, who had triple diagnosis, one physical, one mental health, and the other being substance abuse. You have to also meet those people where they are, and that's a very challenging group of people. And so we have to make sure that these the monies can finally go to those supportive services the housing first and um, focus is a sound uh, focus, and it's just uh, it's important to know that that there's more to it. That we also need these uh, wraparound services so that we actually build stability. So when someone is housed, if they still need their services, you know, putting someone in a closed container, if you will, when they have mental health issues and extreme addiction issues, um, it's not going to work. So housing first, but not housing only. And of course, as many listeners know, and as you and I had a chance to talk about, you come to this challenge closely, right? Your brother, I think, was it six years ago, uh, passed away. Yeah, and, and I if, think it's like seven now. I lose track of time, but uh, yeah. And, and if you, if he, and you recognize that even if he had, you know, housing first, yes, but if, if underlying substance abuse addiction is not addressed, not housing only, I at least want to acknowledge that and appreciate it. The uh, 
and, and the sensitivity that you bring uh, to these conversations, I hope to be as uh, approach that sensitivity. What's a fair objective for homelessness in our town? I, I remember drinks when I was, uh, I, I, somebody came to pitch me, actually somebody you may know, Lee Larson, who was, uh, uh, who uh, worked with, was, was one of the people who, uh, the major financial contributors to, uh, to, right to dr- the Right to Dream uh, camp. And he and he said, Jeff, the thing you ought to do, and I, you know, I just got my tail kicked in a in an election. And, and he said, the thing you ought to do, you ought to dedicate yourself to eliminating homelessness in Portland. And that was what he said. And I will say, and I didn't take him up on the offer, partly because I didn't think I had the expertise. I thought there were people who w- worked on those issues that understood it better than I. But I have to understand, and this is a self critique. Is I was with that as the stated objective, I was just worried I'd fail, and I don't like failing. And that, and that, I say that, I say, I admit that part mostly just to critique myself. But it. What's could be relevant to listeners, may be relevant to you and relevant to the city is what should be the objective? Is the objective the the uh, you know the Reverend Curry objective eliminate all homelessness, eliminate all houselessness, or is that an unrealistic one? And if it's unrealistic, what are we willing to live with? What are we willing to put up with? How many people in our town should be allowed to sleep without a roof over their heads? What's an, how do we state an objective to be able to work towards it? I think you just got there with the final statement. I think that Portlanders need to have, we well have a conversation about what are the core services that we provide and what are our core expectations. And we have expectations that everyone should have a good night's sleep in a safe, secure bed. Um, And I do think the Metro measure will really change everything. It, It already has. It's allowed us to look at building a system from the streets to stability that, that starts to meet with solution, the complexity of the solution, which will match the complexity of the problem. And so I think that that's what we have to focus on. And it is a continuum. And we need to first know what the problem is in terms of even by the numbers. And then we have to look at measuring success from say going from the streets in an unstructured manner to an alternative shelter camping situation that has, uh, that we will provide um, communal food, communal um, access to hygiene communal, um, also social workers that can really get to know each person by name. So somebody, their success on a day would be that they stayed sober that day. They went to a meeting that day, a 12-step meeting. They um, started meeting with their counselor. Um, If they string together a week with that type of behavior one day at a time, they're going to build that resilience to eventually have, want to be in an apartment and start to work again. So I just think it's really important to remember that even though we have, you know, you can have a thousand different houseless people and you can interview them and you'd have a thousand different stories. That said, you can also differentiate in some more a mass population within that group. And I think that we have to really have at least four different types of strategies for at least four different types of clumps of population. And so I just want us to build a system. And then once we have the system built, one year at a time, we can start to see what success looks like. But right now, we're not even winning the zero-sum game. We're just, uh, you know, maybe a shelter might open, but then we have twice as many people that are now houseless. And so it's it's being honest about the severity of this challenge, and it's really going to measure, you and I both grew up here, Portlanders don't want this to be our reality. We want to be Test, we're being tested. We're ashamed so of it. I mean, any, tested we're, we're ashamed nationally of it. to do something about this in a really big way that the rest of the countries would say, once again, 
Portland has it going on. Like that's a city that tackled something that is so difficult and severe, but because the good voters passed something like the Here Together measure, they're actually making it count. So now's the time to really incentivize that what we what the voters did for us and and give them what they deserve, which is some results. Last question I've got from a listener. The, this one from uh, Jim Brumberg said venues would love to talk with him about city's arts and entertainment industry contributing to Portland's economic recovery, specifically helping the areas hardest hit by the pandemic, such as downtown and East Portland. Uh, how do we prioritize performing arts businesses? Uh, or is, is he aware that for every dollar spent on a ticket to a show, $12 goes to the local economy? Uh, are arts businesses, which make Portland so special, being given a seat at the table in planning Portland's recovery? There's a bunch in there, but any thoughts about how we uh, how we work with, or is this you know are there so many people? Are there so many sectors that need help? This is just one of the sectors that need help, or is there some special help that needs to go, that need to go to uh, to not just nonprofit but also for profit arts organizations? Well, I agree with Jim, and I think almost everyone everyone on the council does. And I think what I enjoyed about our dialogue when we were talking about economic recovery is Commissioner Rubio has that under her portfolio mentioned the arts. And the fact is, arts is a big part of our economic recovery. But I would add, it's also music and it's also um, film. And so I look at it, all three of them. They're a big part of our economy. And so when we talk about their economy coming back, they're absolutely front and center in that discussion. So we're not treating the arts as some appendage. It's, it's the heart and soul of this city. It always has been. And that includes music and that includes film. Anything you're enjoying about... Uh... This is a horrible way to put that question. Any silver lining for you about the pandemic, speaking personally, uh, as I've been thinking about how I've been able to use time that I've saved from commuting, right? I've like, gone back to school. There's some other things that we've been able to do. Yeah. Any silver lining for you or any silver lining for Portland? Well, for me personally, I, I walk so much more than I used to. Like yesterday, I forgot something at the store. Imagine that. And instead of getting back in the car, I, I turned it into a four mile walk and it was really wonderful to clear my head and just be out on a, on a Sunday in uh, February when it wasn't raining. Um, I think that a lot of people have experienced that. We all know that we want fresh air and the most important thing to focus on with the climate crisis is, is to reduce the use of petroleum and the use of gas. So it's a, I think we have to continue to look at that um, behavior change that's taken place because adult behavior change is very hard to do, hence the entire conversation earlier. And so we have to, as Portlanders, really walk our talk and really look at not jumping in our um, automobiles as much as we used to before the, the pandemic. Washington commercial in the Super Bowl, a beer brand said that what 2020 did was give us lemons and we should make lemonade and therefore buy their new lemon-based <laughs> beer product. To somebody who's lost a family member, lemons is probably not the thing that they think they got. But any note yeah. of hope to come? I found myself covering my head while I was watching that commercial. Like it was so visceral. It felt like it was going to start happening in my, in my TV room, if you will. Yeah. Any note of hope to close? Any pep talk for Portland. People have had a tough year and you're in one of the positions to maybe give them a ray of light that they might have. Any closing word from you? Yeah, I think that in this time of like multiple crises, I'm noticing that there's more of a willingness to uh, be creative. And I'm so grateful for that. So it feels for me personally, a really good time to be in government because I think my biggest worry was always how slow things move. So I do think there's a lot of creativity and promise and um, we're going to roll the, the dice and, and we'll have to, we're going to make some mistakes, but we have to do something. 
And so I'm noticing that there's a spirit to get things done like never before. And we're, we're less in party politics and in some of those corners that really don't feed us when we're just focusing on municipality work. And so I think that there's an all in, um, there's an all in spirit that Portlanders are embracing. And that's why you can't bet against Portland and why we're, we are being tested and we're gonna pass the test and we're gonna be a vibrant city going into the rest of the century. Commissioner Dan Ryan, thanks for being generous with your time. Thanks for your service. Absolutely. It's always good to see you, Jefferson. Have a great day. Be well, man. Thanks to Commissioner Dan Ryan for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.